Well, the Coder family, for those of you that don't know them by name, our, our worship leader, uh, Jake, uh, they are on their way to Disneyland right now. And my goodness, were those boys excited. I mean, they were, um, they were excited. They've never been. I think they've researched every ride. They're, they're so excited. I saw them here yesterday and really excited to go. You know, one of the things that Jake did, I think he actually did it this week, um, is he put some uh, lights in over here on our, on what we used to call, refer to more, uh, more commonly as our distinctives. Zoe, I'm going to call on you. Are you listening? Can you turn the light switch on that's right on your right there? Everybody look over here. This, Jake did this this week. Ah, uh, see those little lights? Um, you can't read what's on those signs, but let me just summarize it briefly. Uh, we have the gospel, the greatest commandment, and the whole counsel of God. And uh, this isn't really specific to our church. This is what's emphasized in the Bible. Um, the, the gospel is of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the greatest commandment, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the whole counsel of God. Each week, we gather um, to learn and to change and to be under submission and authority of the word of God. It is how we're designed to live. And so, so my job is, is uh, whoever's preaching each week, is to serve the scriptures, to be a, a servant, uh, to, to bring it. So Jake's put some light on that, and they're gone today. Just, um, I'm just very thankful uh, for, for them, and I'm thankful for Jake. And, you know, one of the things I'm most thankful for Jake about is not primarily his guitar playing or his worship leading, which he is awesome at, but that he is a godly man, that he's a man of integrity. And that's why I'm uh, so thankful to have him and to have them as part of our family. So we have the, if you forget, we've got three distinctives. You can go uh, cheat now and go see what they are at any time. Get a, 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 a refresher on, on what the Bible teaches. But I think we have a fourth distinctive that I thought of today. When, when Don, our, one of our longtime elders, stands up here and begins confession by saying, I want to talk to you about shaving. Um, and that is, I think one of our distinctives is being real. At Cornerstone, like we're we're not trying to, you know, we haven't bought any smoke machines or fancy lights. Like we're just we just want to be real and real people. And so I'm thankful, thankful for Don and thankful for just the realness of, of the Cornerstone uh, Church family. I read uh, an article uh, this week uh, by a woman named Lauren Weir. She writes this. She says the sun sets and rises. And the people of the earth check their phones. The mesmerizing glow wakes us up, escorts us into the day ahead, supplying us with all we missed while we slept. Our little companion goes with us every notification, calling out to us. Notes, turn your cell phones off right now. Um, we wait for quiet moments to steal a glance at the screen, to slip away from work, the kids, or the boredom. Into the place that promises delight, comfort, or even rest. And one of the things that I love about Sunday mornings, uh, there are a lot of things I love about Sunday mornings. Love being with you. Uh, love getting to know and see and interact with a few of you. We've already had a time of prayer this morning that was very special uh, in my office. It is each week. I look forward to the Lord's Supper. I look forward to confessing my sins each week. Well, that may be a little bit of an overstatement. I look forward to it after it's over, the, the confessing part. I don't actually like, oh, I can't wait to go confess my sins today. But it, it is good. 
And there's so many things that I like about Sunday mornings. But one of the things that I really like about Sunday mornings is, is I take my phone and I put it in my drawer in my office. I don't have a phone in my pocket. I don't have a phone plugged into my car or Bluetooth to my car. I mean, for many of us, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, our phones are like an extension of us. If we're driving, if we're sitting, if we're worshiping, whatever we're doing. And, and I'm talking about this this morning because after I read her article this week, I thought about how much my phone has possibly influenced, likely influenced my prayer life in subtle ways, but very, very strong and powerful ways. I had to think about this. Now, maybe you're one of the few people here today who, who is not attached to your phone, who, who, who doesn't have it Bluetooth or plugged in when you're driving, who doesn't make sh- have that thing with you all the time. And if you are, maybe there are other things that influence your relationship with God and influence your prayer time, your prayer life that, that, that aren't really great. Um, maybe it's just a very practical influence in your life. Maybe it's, it's, you know, you pray before a Bible study or a small group. You pray before a meal. Uh, you pray with the children at bedtime or when you get up in the morning. And maybe, maybe that's the extent of your time of communion and praying uh, with God. But for many of us, I want to suggest that our phones have actually impacted us in really, really deep ways. And, and the way that we use them and have impacted even our prayer lives. Uh, she, she goes on in her uh, article, she, she writes this. She says, phones also teach us to expect an immediate reply. In prayer, though, we may wait years, a lifetime even, before God answers. And this is the hard part. This is for our good. That in the waiting, we might grow in character and gain more of him. When he doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we want, it is often a providential way of saying that you and I desperately need to be with him more and more and more, and we need to change. This is one of the emphasis, one of the many emphases in scripture is, is about the persistence of praying and the patience that is involved in praying. You're familiar with this parable, the, the parable of the persistent widow. Luke 18, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Not always check our phones, not always get into this or that habit, but that we should always pray and not give up. Here's what he said in this parable. In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? No, he won't. And one of the primary themes that we have in scripture is that we need to cry out day and night. Our prayer lives are really another way of talking about our relationship with Jesus. And he is wanting us to cry out to him and to be patient and to be with him. 
And I'm suggesting that a lot of the things that influence our relationships with God, a lot of the things that influence our prayer lives are things other than the scriptures themselves, especially our phones influence us. Again, Lauren Weir writes, the influence of our phones can leave us desiring depth without work, intimacy without long-suffering, and community without commitment. God is our all-satisfying joy and power, and he wants us to be in communion with him. And so today, as we continue our journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to come to one of Paul's prayers. And it's a prayer that we can easily skip over. And so we're going to emphasize this. It's the last few verses of our unit of scripture today, verses 11 through 13. And, and what God has said to me and what now I am wanting to serve to you, kind of the basic premise of today's sermon is that a whole variety of things have influenced my prayer life and probably your prayer life that are not the scriptures. The primary thing that ought to influence and direct and guide how we pray is the word of God. And so as we uh, spend a few minutes and then we'll get to verses 11 through 13, I'm praying that God is going to speak to you as he has spoken to me this week as, I've, as I have labored over and prayed over this text that he would change the way that I pray. And we're going to see how Paul prays. And when I, I look at how Paul prays and I look at how I pray, I end up needing to pray, Lord, help me to pray like this. Help me to be in situations where I would actually genuinely be praying this way. So again, this is mostly in verses um, 11 through 13 that we're going to see. But let's take a look now at verses 6 through 10 of 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. And let's begin taking a look at verses 6 through 10. Let's look at verse 6 just to start. It says, but Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Let's pause there just after verse 6. So if you're visiting with us or haven't been here the last few weeks, just a little refresher. So Paul is part of a ministry team that includes Timothy and Silas. We don't know what exactly caused it, but they had to leave abruptly Thessalonica and they're in Corinth now. And Paul has been very concerned about the spiritual condition of the Thessalonians and that they had to abruptly leave and that they couldn't be together. And so we learned last week that he sent Timothy to them. And so now we're told Timothy has just come back. And so just as Timothy has come back, that's when Paul picks up his pen and writes the letter that we know as 1 Thessalonians. So just as he's returned, that's when he wrote this book. He's returned from Thessalonica to Corinth. And notice he describes this good news. And the good news is about the faith and love of the Thessalonian church. Now just a, a comment here. You've heard me say this many, many weeks, many, many times. Hopefully you've gotten this by now. But every word has a whole variety of meanings. Sometimes two, three, ten meanings. And the Greek word, uh, we don't really have this word in English. The Greek word euangelizo which if we were to translate it literally means I gospel. Uh, we, we don't really say that, right? We, we, we don't say that, but that's, that's a verb in Greek. So just in one word, 
You can say, I gospel. The pronoun is inside the verb there. Uangalizo, I gospel. If we translate that, we, we would translate it, I preach the gospel or I share the gospel or I'm living out the gospel. We have to add something else in English. Now that, ver- that word in a verb form, easy for me to say. Slow down, Mike. It's okay. It's all right. Uangalizo. I get excited up here. Um, that verb uh, in English uh, is, is difficult to say. I lost my train of thought. Where was I going? Here's where I was going. That, that verb or noun, uangelizo, uangelion is the noun, is almost always referring to the good news of Jesus in the New Testament. That Jesus died and he rose from the dead on the third day. And by faith in him, through his grace, you can be saved. But there's two times in the New Testament where this verb or this noun isn't referring to Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel or good news, how we often translate it. And this is one of them. So this just tells you how happy Paul is. It just literally means good news here apart from the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Timothy has just come back and he has bought this great he has brought this great news and that is that the church in Thessalonica even though we had to leave them abruptly is doing well and they're full of faith and love and so we just see the strength and the joy that Paul has that he uses a vocabulary word here he uses a word here that's normally in the New Testament just talking about the gospel and he's just like yes this is awesome and they have this tremendous love for each other This ministry team, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and the Thessalonians. So look at verse 7. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live. Since you are standing firm in the Lord, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Verse 10, night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. So I hope you get a sense here of just the incredible joy that Paul has upon this good news that the church is doing well, even though they had to leave abruptly and be separated. Look at verse 8 again. I love this. He says, for now we really live. I mean, I think when we read that verse... The, the careful reader who's thinking about their own life should, should ask the question, when is it that I'm really living? When is it that Mike is really living? Insert your name there. When is it that you really live? That you are just so happy and full of joy? Now, I hope there's lots of answers to that question. But one of the things I want to suggest, one of the longings that we ought to have in our hearts is that you and I would be really living when we have have impacted some other person's life for the sake of Jesus and they are now thriving. They are now doing well. They are, are living for the God who made them. That's when Paul really lived. God help me. To be able to say, I am really living, not just when I have this incredible mountain bike ride yesterday in the sun. All kinds of people out there. Man, I was just blowing by them. You would have been so proud of me. (laughs) I'm making fun of myself a little bit here. That's a good thing, okay? I'm not putting that down. But that is too small. That is too short. 
might I really live when someone who doesn't know Christ and I have loved them and I have shown them what, what it means to be a believer by serving them and loving them and then sharing the good news, the euangelion, I've gospeled them and then they come to believe in Jesus and then I get word that, that, that they're doing well, that they're no longer full of stress and anxiety and worry. They still struggle with that, but they're, they're making huge progress because they're now living according to the scriptures, according to the one that made them. Might we really live, church, when that happens through you and through me? This is how Paul really, really lived. So all of this brings us uh, to the prayer. I'm starting to lose my voice already. And we're going to spend most of our time in what is really a prayer beginning in verse 11. So let's look at his prayer. He breaks into prayer here. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. His first prayer is that they would be together. And before we talk about that more broadly and how it relates to us, there's something really cool going on in verse 11. It's, it's just intuitive to us. We know when we have uh, two subjects we, we, we change the, the verb to align with, uh, with a plural, with two subjects. Um, they went, um, he goes, or she goes, or, or they are going, uh, he goes. We, we, we change, we, we, we have agreement, we have a conjugation there, we have uh, subject and verb that go together. And there's something pretty cool that happens in verse 11. Notice we have a compound or a dual subject. We have two persons, God our Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. But the verb here is in singular. It's singular. It's not that easy to see, but it's there. Clear the way for us is singular. That verb is used normally with just one single subject. So why is it singular here? Some of you know your doctrine. Why is it singular here, someone? <laughs> they are one. The Father and the Son are one. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. So even the very grammar of the Greek New Testament teaches theology about God. That God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus, are one. Now notice something else before we even talk about this prayer. That Paul is praying to God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Throughout church history, there have been a whole variety of false teachers who have said, well, Jesus is like God Jr. He's not fully God. He wasn't there in the beginning. He didn't create the new heavens and the new earth. That, that, that's, that's, that's not the case. Notice who Paul is praying to. We only pray to deity especially a Jew, a radical monotheistic Jew, which Paul was. We only pray to God. There is only one God. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And Paul, the apostle, is praying to God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus. So we see this unity and deity of Jesus and the unity of God the Father and the Son. That's all just bonus material. I hope you enjoyed that. So let's come back to what he's actually praying in his heart here. What he's praying is for this fellowship to happen. And if you were here last week, you remember why the fellowship wasn't happening. It was because of the evil one, because of Satan. Look back at chapter 2 and verse 18. 
For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul did, again and again, but Satan stopped us. Satan stopped us. Paul was discerning. He recognized that the enemy was up to something. That's why he was stressed out and why he's praying night and day so that their faith would not be in vain, that their ministry would not be in vain. And that's why he's so happy. That's why he uses this word, uangelizo, to talk about this good news, that their faith and their love is strong. So he's praying that they would be together, that, that, they, that they would love one another. So the first thing that I'm uh, saying today about learning to pray from Scripture instead of learning to pray by what's going around us or praying by our phone, we need to pray for the removal of enemy roadblocks to fellowship. That is what has happened here. If you look at chapter 2 and you look at chapter 3, there has been a roadblock to fellowship between the ministry team of Paul, Silas, and Timothy and the Thessalonian church. And Paul is praying that this would be overcome. So this is where you and I need to begin thinking about our own fellowship. And are there roadblocks to this fellowship? Now, just let me back up a second here and just remind you, those of you that are journaling and taking notes, those of you that are note takers, what we have really in this prayer, verses 11 through 13, is kind of the hinge of the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul skillfully moves from the first half of the letter, chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 3, or chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse through 10, to the second half by means of transitional prayers. So this, this prayer, verses 11 through 13, is kind of the hinge in the book where, where he pivots. And he does this by praying for them. And he's praying for the removal of enemy roadblocks to fellowship. Uh, John Stott writes this, was, Paul, was Paul's prayer answered? He writes, Paul's prayer was answered, although only about five years later when he visited Macedonia twice towards the end of his third missionary journey. So his prayer was answered, uh, but not right away. And certainly not, I think, in the context that he was expecting. Uh, God was sovereign over Paul's travels, just as he's sovereign over your travels and where your life goes and, and how you came to be sitting in this place this morning. That's true for Paul's life as well. But he is praying desperately for this reunion and for this fellowship, and they are longing for it. And so again, I think the careful reader of scripture who is thinking about their own life should be thinking at this point about what kind of enemy roadblocks are there to fellowship in your own life. Now, Paul ultimately is not out of fellowship at all. He's with his ministry team, and that's why he was reluctant to even send Timothy, this close brother. He wanted to be with him in Corinth and in Athens. But he sent him, and now they're back. So Paul is constantly in fellowship, intimate fellowship with other believers. I want to suggest to you that what should be influencing our prayer lives in relationship with God are the scriptures themselves. And let's look at how Paul prays. So this is the point where I want to ask, do you have close brothers and sisters in the Lord that you can share your, your, your greatest disappointments and hurts and struggles as well as your triumphs with? Do you have this? Paul has it. And there's a roadblock that has put it up in one category of people, the Thessalonians, and he's praying against the evil one that that roadblock would go away. How much more do you and I 
in our individualistic societies where we've got our garage door buttons and we may not even know our neighbors and we sit in front of screens, how desperately do we need to be in each other's lives? So I don't know exactly what you need to do to be in fellowship, but you, you need to, to take some steps. If you don't have that, if you don't have a Silas, if you don't have a Timothy, are you praying for the removal of enemy roadblocks to fellowship in your own life? This is what Paul is praying in verse 11. Let's uh, move on and look at verse 12 together, the second part of his prayer. He says, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. And let's just stop there and talk about this second element of his prayer. I see four elements of his prayer here in verses 11 through 13. His first prayer is against this enemy roadblock to fellowship. And the second one is that may the Lord make your love increase and flow for each other. This is what he's praying for, for these new believers in Thessalonica. That they would love each other. It sounds familiar. It comes straight from the teaching of our Lord. In John 13. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. That you get dressed up on Sunday. And that you go to church. And carry a Bible. That you vote a certain way. That you... Avoid rated R movies that you don't dance. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you don't go into a bar. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. God has established his church to be a community where we love each other, where we are in each other's lives in simple ways and in complex ways. This is his methodology for reaching the world is that we have this alternate community of love where we care for each other and love each other. This is how they're going to know that you're my disciples. Paul's longing to be with them. He loves these people. It was evident this was an alternate community. David Mathis writes this. He says, our final apologetic is not persuasive public rhetoric or shrewdly identifying areas of common concern with society. It is our love for one another. Even in the 21st century, some opponents will turn, as early church detractors did, according to Tertullian, and say, see how they love one another. How glorious it is when someone comes to one of our small groups or comes to one of our Sunday gatherings. And I've heard this testimony where, my goodness, I was loved on and I met people. And they may have different words to describe it. It's usually just your church is so friendly. See how they love one another. In the days ahead, we will find that more important than culture warring is community creating. Because community conquers culture. It did in the first century and it will again in the 21st. What influences your prayer life? Does the scripture influence your prayer life? 
If the scripture, if 1 Thessalonians 3, our passage for today, is to influence your prayer life, the two summaries of it are, so far, the removal of enemy roadblocks to fellowship, that's in verse 11, and increasing and overflowing love among believers. Not just that we would be friendly, but that we would have an increasing and overflowing love among us that makes it obvious that, that we're different than people who are in the world because of how we love and care for each other. I'm not going to share the details with you this morning because I, I didn't ask permission, but, you know, this uh, Friday morning, our men's group got together. And something that doesn't happen very often when men get together are, are tears. But in recent weeks, including this just two days ago on Friday, uh, th there were tears uh, among this group of men gathering on Friday morning. There were tears because we were involved in each other's lives and someone is in tremendous grief right now. Actually, a couple people are in tremendous grief in our group. And we love each other. And we know what's going on in each other's lives. And so my prayer, if I'm going to be influenced by the scriptures and not my phone or other things, is I'm praying for an increasing and overflowing love among believers, like what I saw Friday morning in our small group. Like what I know is going on on, what morning is it? Two, Wednesday mornings of our ladies who meet over here in room 108. They actually let me join them this last week. I was at the women's Bible study. Is that okay? Do I lose my man card that I went to the women's? It was just me and a bunch of women in room 108 Wednesday morning. So I'm not there each week, but they have an increasing and overflowing love among them. I know they do. That's why they take the energy to get up and, and come here and be together. Who are you getting together with? And hopefully it's not just once a week in a group. Hopefully there are interactions throughout the week. Paul's prayer for this new group of believers in Thessalonica, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. Continuing on in verse 12, he goes on, and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. So the everyone else is praying for those who are yet to believe in Jesus. So prayer one is in verse 11. It says one, but it should say 11. Prayer two is in, in the beginning of 12. And then the second category of prayer, the second theme I'm seeing in these four verses is, is uh, their love to grow for those yet to believe in Jesus. Praying for everyone else in Thessalonica. First and foremost, your love to overflow, increase and overflow for each other, and then for everyone else. That is those outside the church. That's how he's praying. Your love to grow for those yet to believe in Jesus is the way I'm summarizing that. As I summarize things, you should be asking, is that really in the text? You should be Bereans. It is. It says, and for everyone else, that is everyone else in Thessalonica, just as ours does for you. Paul's praying this for them, and he's telling them to pray this for each other and for those who don't know the Lord. So I have been growing in this recently. If you happen to work at a Christian school or here at Cornerstone or, or in, in some um, Christian place, it, it's not okay to, to be entirely surrounded by Christians. It should be the primary influence in fellowship in our lives. 
But Paul is praying for them to have love increasing and overflowing for everyone else. This is, this is the third thing he's praying for them after this good news comes. A list of people that don't know Jesus. Do you have that? I don't have it in a spreadsheet. I don't, it's not long enough. I don't have it written down. But I have three people. And if you've been around me over the recent weeks, you, you, you know who some of those people are. Because I'm praying for them. I'm seeking to love them. I'm seeking to care for them. What we are doing this morning is we are asking the question, do the scriptures influence how we pray? Or are other things influencing how we pray? Pray for those who do not yet believe in Jesus and love them. Love overflowing to them. So it's not just let me preach the gospel to you, but have overflowing love to you to incarnate the gospel, to demonstrate the gospel. Inviting them to your home for dinner, whatever it looks like, I don't know. This is where preaching gets hard. And I want to uh, finish up here. The last uh, element that we see in prayer is in verse 13. Let's look at verse 13 together. He says, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones, with all the saints. Again, many times, we're going to look at this in a few weeks, the end times is a prominent theme. We're going to get this especially in chapter 4. The, the coming of Jesus is significant and part of the reason it's significant is that we are ready. And so his final prayer is that they would be holy, be blameless and holy in the presence of Jesus when he comes with his saints. So the fourth thing, pray for the removal of enemy roadblocks, increasing and overflowing love, your love to grow for those who don't know Christ, and finally pray for personal holiness. He's praying for the individual personal holiness of each of the believers in Thessalonica and that collectively they would be holy, they would be obedient to the scriptures. Not perfect, not people who don't need to confess each week, but that they would be blameless, that they would be above reproach, that they would say, I'm longing to be holy and I'm praying for that and I'm in the fight. That's what Paul is praying for. The Holy Spirit inspired this passage to help us to know in part how to pray. To pray for our personal holiness. It's interesting in some of the Greek manuscripts at the end of verse 13, I told you it's kind of a hinge. You know, we have all these, we have actually about 5,000 different manuscripts of the Greek New Testament that are, that are very old. And they some of them disagree with each other, and they disagree in very minor ways. And here's one of the minor ways they disagree. This is the common English Bible, verse 13. It, a, it translates it this way, verse 13. May the, love may the love cause your hearts to be strengthened, to be blameless in holiness before our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his people. Amen. So your translation doesn't have, unless you have this translation, which I don't think any of you do, um, your translation doesn't have amen. Some of the ancient manuscripts have amen right there. And it kind of punctuates this hinge, this, these, this uh, verses 11 through 13, this prayer, as he then moves on to the second part of the book. Amen. This is how Paul prays. He prays for the personal holiness of the Thessalonians. 
May God help us to pray. May God help me to pray for my personal holiness and for your personal holiness and collectively our personal holiness that we are submissive and reverent and under the authority of the scriptures and that we long to live for God and be holy in his eyes even when no one else's eyes are on us, even when we could get away with whatever we are doing that is disobedient, that we don't want to get away with it, that we want to be holy. It happens by his grace. Close today with encouraging words from R.C. Sproul. He writes this. He says, when we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. How do we become holy? It's not by me yelling louder or by you trying harder. It is by us desperately asking God's grace and his Holy Spirit to come into us and to change us and to give us the strength that we don't have in ourselves. He supplies the power. Sproul goes on, our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. There is, there is something healthy about focusing on God's wrath and his justice, and it is that by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we avoid that wrath and we avoid his justice when we believe that Jesus died in our place and rose on the third day. And that same power that saves us can change us and make us holy. This is what Paul is praying for. We'll close with this sentence from Sproul. He says, the hands of God are gracious hands. They, have a, they alone have the power to rescue us to change us, and to make us holy. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father in heaven, we pray for protection from the evil one who would put roadblocks in our lives to fellowship. Those roadblocks may be busyness. Those roadblocks may be our tendency to prefer to be alone which is another way of saying that we prefer to disobey God's word. Lord, help us. Help us to be in close fellowship with one another. Father, we pray that you would help us as individual believers for our love to overflow into each other's lives. May we leave this place today and in some minutes after the Lord's Supper, may we leave this place today thinking about who it is that I need to love with an overflowing kind of love and increase this week. Maybe it's someone in this fellowship. Maybe it's someone who doesn't know Jesus yet. Lord, help us to love our neighbors. And finally, God, we pray for our personal holiness, that we would be mindful of Jesus' return. It has been a long time. We don't know when he is coming back, but we pray that we would be ready and that we would be earnest that we would be serious about obeying your word and we would be pleading for your spirit to help us in those areas of life that we struggle and may we do all this as worship and glory unto you we pray in jesus name amen